Let's pray. Thy heads, please. Father, uh, I don't know how to preach. I am afraid that I won't be understood and that the words that I say won't be your words. Please work in my hearers to quicken their hearts when I'm speaking the truth and to forget those things I say that are not your will. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have friends tell me often, uh, and I've often said myself, that they're not spending enough time with God, um, not reading their Bible enough, not praying enough. And I finally found the cure for that. Uh, Ask uh, Dave Silvernell if you can preach. (laughs) I've spent a lot of time (laughs) on my knees in the last um, few weeks, last couple months, um, really just doing any ministry that you don't have training or skills for that you're not comfortable with, uh, I think, drives you to the Lord. When you go to a a seminar to hear someone speak on a topic about which you have some interest, maybe something related to your work or hobbies, you expect the person speaking to be knowledgeable, knowledgeable about their subject and possibly even someone who would be considered an authority in their field. You may have paid good money to hear them speak, so of course you want the speaker to be the best. Well, that's why it didn't cost anything to come in here today. (laughs) The subject I'm preaching on today is one that God has given me a great awareness of and an interest in, but which I have little natural skill at. And despite my enthusiasm for it, it makes me extremely uncomfortable. And I'm often at a loss to know how or when to pursue it. I'm going to talk to you today about God's love and concern for and our response to the poor. I am no expert in caring for the poor or loving the poor. I don't often seek them out, and I struggle every time with how to effectively share anything with them. To be honest, the poor are disquieting to me. When I am serving them, I feel guilty about the amount of stuff I own, and often I am fearful of their touch and of their circumstances. They are different and not in a good, intriguing way. My desire to serve them and to bless them with my faith in Christ does not spring from some competency that, I, that God has given me in this area. It comes solely from my belief that God is extremely concerned about them. When I was in Haiti in April, a couple of times I thought to myself, why am I here? The only answer I had that had any um, value was that God loves the people of Haiti, and I love God. Emily and I <laughs> drove into Mexico several years back on our way south. We passed through a desert region in the north of Mexico. And I'll never forget the people that we saw along the side of the road and how they lived. There were many, many settlements clustered along the highway. For the most part, pieces of wood or shipping pallets uh, leaning together with a piece of corrugated steel lying on top for a roof and a a sheet draped over the opening for a door. And these homes were, um, many of them, maybe six feet wide by six feet wide by six feet high. There were fire pits out front and a few possessions lying on the ground. The people were in rags and the children were naked. And as cars drove by, uh, as we drove by, they would hold up things to encourage us to stop. An old lady held up a chihuahua that I guess she wanted us to buy. A couple of the uh, families had put up a rack of branches on which they had stretched rattlesnake skins for sale. 
we assumed they'd eaten the snakes. I'd never seen people that poor. I had always thought that at some point you were just so poor that you would die. But these people were poorer than that, and they struggled along. God loves these people in Mexico and the poor in Haiti, and he loves the poor in Loudoun County. He doesn't wish them well or care for them in a dispassionate way like we might. He loves them fervently as demonstrated by what he commands us to do for them. Isaiah 58, 6 through 7 says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Deuteronomy 15.10 says, Give generously to the poor, and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. In over 130 verses in the Old Testament, God demonstrates his compassion for the poor and the needy. And when Jesus began his ministry, he continued in this theme. Over 40 times in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles, through instruction and through acts of service, demonstrated their concern for the poor. Luke 4, 16 through 19 says of Jesus that when he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Luke 6, 20-21, it says that Jesus, looking at his disciples, said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Jesus had compassion for the poor because they are poor. The Bible is full of warnings to those who torment the poor and also to those who ignore them. It is also full of promises of comfort for the poor and oppressed. We cannot be indifferent to the plight of the oppressed, even when they have lived in such a way as to deserve their troubles. That wasn't Jesus' example, and he didn't give us that option either. We can't minister only to those who make us feel better about ourselves, or those who appreciate what we do for them, or those who somehow deserve help. We are required to care for the ungrateful and the undeserving just as much. God's mercy to us is not based upon our worthiness. It is freely given in spite of our unworthiness. Likewise, our mercy toward God I'm sorry, toward others, should be the same. Jesus commands us in Luke's gospel to love our enemies. And who is less deserving of love than our enemies? Yet we must love them. So how should we love the poor? This isn't hard to understand. It's it's just hard to do. To help anyone, we need to give them what they need. Psalm 140.12 says, I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. And in James, we have a warning about oppressing the poor through our lifestyles. James 5, 1 through 6 says, Now listen, you rich people, 
Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. God hears the, the cries of the oppressed and their oppressors, and their oppressors are condemned. The poor need justice. God demands justice for them. The poor are oppressed in, all, in our culture and in all cultures. They're easily taken advantage of, and they have few advocates. We must not only keep from oppressing them ourselves through our decisions at work and in our voting, this is passive justice, but we must actively seek to promote justice for the poor when our government and others oppress them. I know so little about economics that anything I say about the dangers of our free market economy or about the dangers of our welfare state will cause some of you to label me a liberal and others to label me a conservative. I have trouble managing my own personal economics, so I'm wisest to say nothing about America's or Loudon's, but I do know that greed in any form is destructive to the soul. Two verses in Proverbs 14.31, oh, two verses in Proverbs. Proverbs 14.31 says, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. And Proverbs 29.7 says, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. So the righteous care and the wicked have no concern. If we are to be righteous and not wicked, we have to defend the defenseless. The poor need our time. It is easy to love the lovable, and it is no credit to us. We are called to love the unlovable solely because they are in need of love. You have probably heard that most converts to Christianity are made through relationships with Christians and not in church uh, via sermons or evangelistic crusades. The majority come to Christ by association with friends or acquaintances who share him. In the same way, the best ministry to the poor is done in person. We can't understand the poor until we get, begin to understand what poverty is like. You can't get that from a book, and you can't get it from a TV special or from a sermon. We have to go to them where they are, and we have to be with them. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. In it, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. I'm not looking at you all. I can. <laughs> <laughs> then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
when did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply. I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. I love that part. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I need clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you, he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When we see the drug-addled itinerant or the drunk on the street or the impoverished mother, who doesn't spend her welfare check well, or the illegal immigrant at 7-Eleven who works for next to nothing, or the dirty, smelly, loud homeless man, we are looking at Jesus in the only form that we'll see him on this, <laughs> in the only form we'll see him this side of heaven. This passage always startles me. It says that I am to treat everyone I see as I would treat Jesus. When you care for the needy, you are caring for Jesus. When I prefer my own comfort and security to visiting prisoners, I am rejecting Jesus. C.S. Lewis um, wrote in an essay called The Weight of Glory that, quote, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, Civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our, our merriment must be of the kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taking each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. End of quote. Let me repeat that last uh, sentence of his. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. That's not the Bible, but I think it's true. I think that that's what Jesus said. The poor are our holy neighbors. Jesus spent his time with them again and again, and we must go to be with them. Mother Teresa once said that in the poor, we meet Jesus in the most distressing disguises. Jesus is telling us that he associates in a real and tangible way with the poor and the distressed. Our remote acts of charity legitimize our indifferent attitude of good intentions. And this robs us of the gift of community. We should be where Jesus is and where Jesus spent his time. The poor also need food, clothing, homes, etc. All the things that cost money 
Inasmuch as we have money, we need to use it for the kingdom of God. Proverbs 19.17 says, He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. The Apostle John says in 1 John 3.17-18, Please turn, I'm going to ask you to turn to your 1 John 3.17-18. That's the New Testament. 1 John 3, 17 through 18 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Some of you are by nature compassionate, and you may be listening to me and thinking, Yes, I feel that way. I gladly do these things. Some of you are by nature generous, You may give freely and give much and find joy in it. The rest of us need God to help us overcome our reluctance to do these things. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul lists several spiritual gifts that believers have. And in verse 7, it says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. When God gives us things, he gives them to us for the common good, not just for our good. It tells us here in this verse 7 that believers are given gifts by God for the common good. We're not given gifts to use for ourselves only. We are to use them for everyone. I hope that you are always looking for ways to use your gifts for the benefit of everyone around you. That's why you have them. They aren't yours to boast about or to withhold or to parcel out as you see fit. You are blessed to be a blessing. That's the reason you are blessed with talents, gifts, and possessions. To continue being honest, I will confess that I love comfort. I like routine and quiet and my friends and family. I like my home and I like being in it. I like chocolate and I love Diet Coke. (laughs) These are all good things. The problem with my list of good things is not the things themselves. It's my attitude towards them. Good things, your list or mine, become bad things when we start to act as if we must have them to be happy. I don't intend to change this into a sermon on idolatry, but I need to point out that money is one of those things that many of of us have on our list of good things. But I think it's interesting that though we are allowed to love our kids or to love chocolate, we're not allowed to love money. Money becomes an idol too quickly and quietly. 2 Corinthians 8, 2-3 says, Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, that's the Macedonian Christians he's talking about, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. I wonder, how can I do that? How can I give until it hurts? I can't do it unless I have God at work in me restraining my natural tendency to keep his gifts for myself. This is where it gets unpleasant. We often think that we work hard and we deserve the benefits of our labor. But if you are successful at what you do, why is that to your credit? Most of what we consider our talents are the result of things over which we have no control. Who our parents are, how much money they had to send us to good schools, whether we are naturally healthy or unhealthy, naturally intelligent or thick-headed, naturally good-looking or plain, or whether we were born in the U.S. or in Aboriginal New Zealand. An Aborigine dealt the hand you got might be living in your house 
while you would be in his hut with an empty belly. But hut or house, what we have is God's gift to us. A few more verses concerning how we are to use our money for the poor. Matthew 5.42 says, Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Deuteronomy 15.7 says, If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So according to these verses, I'm supposed to give away more than I can afford. I'm supposed to give to everyone who asks. And then I'm supposed to, in fact, I'm supposed to give money away at every opportunity I have. Someone said to give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. We need a new heart if we are to work for the poor. We have to work actively for justice. We have to meet them where they are. We have to give them of ourselves and our resources, money and time, to meet their needs. I'm certain those of you here who know God have gotten joy from serving him in some capacity. The answer to question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, thank you, quote, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, end of quote. I think that's the best part. God gets glory and we get joy. I have experienced this on occasion as I've done these things. Truthfully, truthfully, I'm not good at denying myself and serving in this way. But when I'm able to empty myself and be filled with God's power, I overflow with inexpressible joy joy of being used by him. And my sacrifices at that point seem minuscule, and the things sacrificed seem trivial. Then I wouldn't exchange the delight I get for anything. But then somehow I forget, and the stuff of this world clutters up my mind. Let this sermon serve as a reminder that there is a better way. We're going to look at a couple more verses. Luke uh, 12, 16 through 26 you can turn there. Please turn to Luke 12. 12, 16 through 26 says, Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no more place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? How do these verses make you feel? I long to live like this, trusting God moment by moment. I try and fail constantly. But my work is not to succeed. My work is to be obedient to his commands. Our work is to be obedient and to try. Outcomes belong to God. I hope you feel excitement in hearing these verses from Luke. 
to trust so fully in God's goodness so you have no anxiety for tomorrow is a rare thing. And I don't think this is pie in the sky. I don't think these are first century rules. I think that God intends us to live like this. But then it gets really hard. Look at Luke 12, 33 through 34. The, part, the verses we just read were preparation for these verses. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus apparently does not believe in moderate giving. We can't temporize with God. He wants it all. He wants all of us. Imagine what a difference we would make in our church and in our broader community if we lived in such a way that we trusted God day to day for our needs. If we started sharing every good thing we have and we are with everyone else. If no man considered the things he has as his own, but shared them with his neighbor freely and gladly, we would become poorer in things, but we would be rich in good works. It might be something like 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 15, which says, Our desire is not that others be, might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. There will be equality. As it is written, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. One final verse to encourage you to love the poor. Luke fourteen twelve through 14 says, Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. After I finish the sermon, Dave Dorst was kind enough to review it for me. He gave me several insightful comments, um, most of which I didn't understand. But he also told me that I should remind you that Jesus lived a perfect life in obedience to the Father, and he died a perfect, left, a perfect death also in obedience to the Father. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Let's pray. Father, it is impossible to live like you've asked us apart from you. That's why we need you, Lord. We need you in our lives so that we can do the things you've asked us to do. You get the glory and we get the joy. Please glorify yourselves in us, Father.